The Charles Adler Show starts now. David Moscrop is an academic. Uh, he's a writer. He writes columns to the Washington Post. He writes books. I think he's on his second or third. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's also a substacker. Uh, Moscrop is spelled M-O-S-C-R-O-P. Uh, it's the uh, davidmoscrop.substack.com. If you're into uh, substacks, and I know many mineral ore people are now, because they want to have a direct relationship, not just with a, a newspaper, a news site, a platform, but with the author, the creator um, himself. And that would be David Moscrop. David, welcome to the Charles Adler podcast. We've had you on lots of times on, on broadcast. as our very first journey on in the podcast era, and I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So, David, lately you have been fulminating about Ford, Ford Nation, uh, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario. There are people who are already... Uh, publicly uh, convicting him. I wonder if, uh, before you give us your your perspective on Ford himself, if you can give us a, a, a bit of context on what this green belt is all about, because uh, people in different parts of the country, outside Ontario, and there is there is a country outside Ontario. You, you spent a lot of time in British Columbia, so I don't need to lecture you about that. But for people outside uh, Ontario, they hear green belt and their eyes glaze over, they just uh, you know, click past it, but it's a really big issue. And I wonder if you could tell us why. Sure. I mean, the green belt was a protected environmental area created by the previous liberal, liberal government uh, quite some time ago now. And the idea was the, the government was going to set aside um, sensitive environmental and agricultural land to protect it for the future. It's quite a bit of land and uh, you, you weren't meant to build on it for residential or commercial purposes. And it's this idea that fundamentally, if we don't protect these spaces now, we're going to have significant problems down the, the line. And it's because, you know, you want to prevent uh, the damage to sensitive ecosystems. You want to preserve farmland, which is necessary for feeding the province and other parts of the country. So I wonder if you could give us a sense of how large uh, this is, because, uh, you know, people here at Greenbelt, they have no idea. They think, well, maybe it's a, a couple of hundred thousand acres, but uh, it's much more than that. It is. I'm going to look it up, though, specifically to give you an exact number because I always forget the exact number. It is um, just over 8,000 square kilometers. Wow, wow, wow. So it's, it's big. Of course, I mean, the province is... Sure, but, but it takes up much of what we call the, the golden horseshoe. The horseshoe would begin, I guess, east of uh, Oshawa and go all the way down to Niagara Falls. It's, it's, it's large. That's right. And it's not like it's tucked away up in northern Ontario, right? It is It is a big part of where a lot of people live. Uh, in fact, there's a little bit of the discussion as well. Okay, this is prime land where everyone is. The pushback from folks is uh, we can build the housing we need where we already are by building density rather than sprawl, which is preferable for all kinds of economic and, and environmental and other reasons. So, you know, the, but that, that said, the green belt is sent within the central bits of the province, but arguably that's also where you want it because you do want to protect land throughout the province and you do want to have access to agricultural land throughout the province because it's not like you can build on, you know, up north and you can't, sorry, you can farm up north in the Canadian Shield, right? You need particular types of land and this is fertile land for farming uh, and has home to marsh and all kinds of things like that. And uh, it's not like it's always been the case. This was created in, in the last few decades by the Liberal government. Uh, it has undergone minor changes. The Ford move now, though, is to swap 
um, prime protected land to build not so dense housing. And what's, what critics are upset about is that, the, as, as the Auditor General's report and others have suggested, you didn't need to do that. It was unnecessary to get rid of this greenbelt land to achieve the housing goals that the province has set. So it looks awfully suspect to a lot of people who say, well, why did you need to tear up this land, which has been purchased by developers, and you're going to make them 30-fold in their profit, absorb roughly $8 billion, uh, when you could have done this elsewhere. Did you say $8 billion with a B? Eight billion with a B, eight point three billion. Wow, is the expect and probably higher. The eight point three billion number comes from a few years ago. Uh, the sense is it's probably higher now. So the eight point three billion dollars is going to what a handful of just a handful of developers who happen to be donors to the Conservative Party in Ontario. I mean, is that the way this works? Yeah, they have to be fairly close to the PC party. They have to be donors. Now, um, of course, you know, developers are going to be donors to lots of political parties. They're going to hedge bets. They're going to have relationships with all kinds of political parties because it's like lobbyists. They want to they want to hedge their bets. They want to play the field. Uh, but the idea is that the developers played an outsized role in crafting the very process that determined which lands were going to be swapped and become eligible for residential development. And if you read the Auditor General's report, it basically says developers captured the process through engaging with effectively one political staffer in the housing minister's office, which looks, uh, well, like worthy of a little bit more investigation. Yeah, so, so we're hearing the number $8.3 billion, and it's, it's mind-numbing. Do you have any sense of what they paid for the land that's now worth $8.3 billion? Yeah, it was something like 200 and change million. And so it's a 30-fold increase in the in the value of the of the property, which, you know, if I don't know if anyone here is an investor, but that's a pretty good return on your money. <laughs> 30 to 1? Uh, you know, a 30-fold yeah. increase. Yeah. That's pretty good. You don't have to be Warren Buffett uh, to, to know that's a that's a good profit. Well, and what a lot of people say is, look, developers came in, they bought this farmland, at 200 and change million, these parcels, um, and they sold, they, they stand to make a profit of, you know, 8 billion. That's a risky bet because unless you have good reason to believe that you're going to be able to build on this land, why would you buy it? Why would you go buy it? So the, the question was, did they know ahead of time? And the premier has denied that they've known ahead of time that no one knew there was no tip off. There was no, uh, you know, sort of insider trading equivalent. They just, took a risk and it paid off, but that's an awfully big risk. And so I, they must have been fairly confident that these lands were going to be uh, eligible for development. And of course, they ultimately turned around and had a huge influence on deciding that those lands are going to be developed. So it didn't take a tip off. It took a process that was corrupted uh, that allowed them to infiltrate government and set the rules for themselves, which is effectively what happened. And, and this is what people, including the Auditor General, are up in arms about. And it's not the last investigation. The, the integrity commissioner is investigating now. There might be a little addendum to that investigation that's added after AG recommendations. And a lot of folks, myself included, have been calling for a, a police investigation too. So it seems that every day uh, Donald Trump is being indicted. He's got... Uh four in, in, indictments now, specific indictments uh, in 
uh, Washington and Florida, and of course the latest uh, in, in the state of Georgia. So because we're used to a former American president um, being indicted with the possibility, of course, of going to jail, um, one naturally is asking the question, could that happen in Canada? Could that happen to Doug Ford? I, I mean, in theory, uh, it could happen to anybody in, in a position of power who's abused that power sufficiently to warrant criminal charges, a conviction and jailing. I don't think it's going to happen. It seems unlikely at this point. There's no evidence that, that suggests um, he has broken any criminal law and, and ought to be charged and prosecuted and convicted and jailed. I mean, I don't, we're, we're, we're nowhere near that. But in, of course, in theory, it could happen. Um, I, I'm equally, if not more concerned that this process ultimately will have been found to be legal. <laughs> to me, that's even, that's even a bigger problem. It's one thing to say, okay, some folks broke laws and they ought to be punished accordingly. And that would be bad. But to look at it and say, this was all done ultimately according to the letter of the law, if not the spirit, is a real indictment of the law, which indicates a bigger problem, which is that the laws are fundamentally broken. So that, that's what's getting worked out right now. And, and honestly, though, I'm more concerned that we're going to look at this and say no laws were broken and think, well, well, they ought to have been, though, right? There ought to have been laws to prevent this. The one hope is that in the aftermath of all of this, we install better processes and expectations and laws to ensure it doesn't happen again because it's corrupting our politics, which drives distrust and drives people to become cynical and angry, rightfully so, and makes it harder to get things done. Just wondering, uh, could any private individual have gotten their hands on land? Just to, to speculate, I mean, they're told that this this lush piece of land that has been uh, protected uh, for, for agriculture, protected for the environment is now available. Developers might want to do something with it. Were, were any private individuals involved in just speculating on, on buying a, a parcel or two of, of land? I don't know. I mean, I know that the, the parcels that are in you're concerned the vast majority, 90x percent of them are related to a handful of big developers. Uh, so that is the ball game. Uh, just, I mean, this is riffing. I, I don't know for sure. My sense is, of, you know, an individual could have purchased privately uh, any bit of land that someone was willing to sell because the Greenbelt protection isn't a prohibition on selling. It's a prohibition on developing. Uh, the question would be, why would you, why would you want it? And that's sort of the question at the heart of the matter is why do big developers come in and want to buy uh, such significant acreages unless they think there's going to be some upside, right? Uh, because of course an individual probably just probably wouldn't. Um, but let, but and, let's be and, clear here, David, yeah. the, there's no way that any of this would be material right now if the Ford government hadn't decided to do rezoning because if it can, if it was zoned as, sacred as agricultural as whatever but but whatever the the categories are of land that you cannot build condos on if it was still zoned that way we wouldn't be talking about an 8.3 billion dollar issue here that's right that's the heart of the matter the heart of the matter was it was a land development swap because the government said well we're going to replace it with with another area of protection and so their talking point is, well, no, the, you know, it washes out. In fact, it's sort of a net benefit because you end up with more greenbelt land. And the pushback is, um, well, why did you have to do that in the first place when you, when even the municipalities and experts are saying, and the Auditor General is saying, 
you didn't need to do the land swap to develop houses to meet your housing goals. You could have done that through existing uh, zoning on on unprotected land. It starts to look a little bit fishy, right? That the, the heart of the matter is there was this land that was protected for farmland and environmentally sensitive land that didn't need to be developed. And the government came along and said, we're gonna rezone it to develop anyway. And these people who happen to be close to us are gonna make a 30 fold profit on their investment that they made at great risk if they didn't think it was going to be developable. And those same people played a huge role in setting the rules that allowed them to develop that land. And I think anyone who looks at it, even a child looks at it and says, there's something fishy. Okay, so I'm, 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 I'm a bit simple and a bit childish here. So let me just ask a childish math question here. One of the reasons I'm told that housing is so dear, so expensive in Ontario, British Columbia and elsewhere, is because of the supply demand equation being out of sorts. If you have too much demand chasing too little supply, the price of the supply is going to be high. I think even a, a child understands that. So th this child wonders whether or not there's a political benefit long-term for the Ford administration because they'll be able to say, hey, we didn't have nearly enough of a supply. We've created a huge opportunity for supply. This may level out uh, the rising price of housing. And so this is what the people elected us to do. Well, that's exactly what they're saying. That's exactly the message with the addendum that they're saying also, we didn't expect the Trudeau government to increase immigration significantly. And if we don't do this, then the immigration consensus is gonna fall apart and we can't welcome newcomers. And there's, there's something to these points. We don't have enough housing. There isn't enough supply. Cities and provinces have failed in their duty to develop housing or to facilitate the development of housing. The federal government has failed in its role. It systemically left the affordable housing, the federally subsidized housing, uh, non-market housing uh, industry over the course of decades. The housing starts compared to um, population growth have decoupled so that population growth is skyrocketing and housing starts are flatlining and that is has contributed to among other things an absolutely wretched housing crisis that are driving people to despair so there is a huge problem there and the Ford government's right to point it out the response is uh, you they could have built the necessary housing without ever touching the green belt and that's what the AG says and that's what every expert says so that it was the choice of land that is, is the controversy here not the desire to build more houses and they could have done that regionally through through density and even in some cases not so much density without ever going near the green belt but they chose not to so the suspicious bit is why did you have to go to the environmentally sensitive protected area when you could have done this everywhere else because everybody agrees we've got to build more housing we've got to build um, starter housing we've got to build rental housing purpose-built rentals we've got to build affordable housing and co-ops non-market housing and we've got to build good old-fashioned single-family housing we've got to do all that but we can do it without touching the green belt the immigration piece is sensitive on a number of levels, but in terms of making this argument, when you bring up immigration, a lot of people start to nod because I think everyone in Ontario is aware, and I don't have the exact number here, but it doesn't matter whether 400,000 immigrants are brought into Canada or 500,000 or 600,000. We know the lion's share, uh, generally well over half, end up in Ontario, even when they start out in 
Manitoba or Saskatchewan or BC or Quebec or the Maritimes, they stay there in those places for a few years and then they drift into Ontario. As a matter of fact, that's just generally the way the Canadian population has worked for the most part for most of history. People drift into Ontario because that's where most of the economic opportunity is. So when, when Ford talks about the immigration problem or the immigration crisis, then this is one way of solving the crisis. For people who are non-partisan, non-political and aren't reading David Mosscroft's Substack, isn't that a pretty compelling argument for a number of Ontarians? It's absolutely compelling. And <clears throat> moreover, it's not wrong. I mean, so we have to find a way in this country to have a responsible conversation about immigration and housing. We've got to be able to say immigration in this country is good. We ought to welcome it. We ought to, to take care of newcomers. And that includes uh, folks who are here as refugees who are seeking asylum. We have a moral duty to that, uh, to do that. We have, and we shouldn't let the immigration consensus crumble. Moreover, immigration is necessary for economic development and growth in this country. That's absolutely accepted across the board. Uh, that ought to happen in such a way that doesn't abuse newcomers and make sure that people have somewhere to work, they get their credentials recognized, they have somewhere to live, they're compensated properly. But that means we need to build houses. And if we don't do that, then we're going to fuel anti-immigrant sentiment because politicians and others are going to point to immigration and say that's the problem. And they might even begin to demonize it if they think it's politically palatable and might win them some points. And it's getting close to the point at which that might be true. So we need to be able to have a conversation that yes, immigration does put pressure on housing costs and other costs, just like urbanization does. But the answer isn't to stop welcoming newcomers or to demonize newcomers. The answer is to get our behinds moving and to build houses like we can if we truly want to. And th that's the struggle right now, because if we start dialing back on immigration, uh, start demonizing immigration, we're, we're going to end up somewhere we pro probably don't want to be. Um, and and at, at great risk, we end up becoming kind of xenophobic over it. So that's the challenge, because you're right, people are going to be compelled by this argument that 500,000 new folks coming to this country a year is a lot when you've got nowhere to house them and nowhere to house people who live here now. So I get that many Canadians don't pay attention to the news in Europe, but it's it's kind of my job to pay attention and for many reasons. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I was, I was born in Europe. It's the fact that the European experience is oftentimes a canary in the coal mine. All this business about the, the far right, Donald Trump and everything that we've been talking about for the last couple of years, the Europeans were way ahead of us, if you can put it that way, uh, years ago, the, the far right was emerging again in, in Europe. So here's the question. In Europe, where so many people on the far right who are uh, gaining so many votes in various countries now, it's not just France, it's not just Italy, it's right across Europe, especially Eastern Europe. And one of the ways they're gaining votes is they're saying that immigration is identified with inflation, Immigration is identified with crime. Immigration is identified with a problem in housing, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if, if, if all of this stuff is being said in Europe and some of it is being said in Canada, can't you see the volume of this increasing? The idea of associating, you use the word demonization, the, the idea of associating immigration with all kinds of things that people really are sick and tired of housing issues, inflation issues, crime issues. 
immigration is not the reason for all of that, but it's so easy, David Mosscrop, to use immigration. Well, it's, it's scapegoating. It's classic scapegoating. And in some cases, uh, in extraordinary cases, um, you know, the, you can have a, a flood of people into a country that deeply disrupts the country. I mean, look at Lebanon, look at Jordan and the challenges they faced in the wake of the Syrian refugee crisis, right? Um, that's not what we're, we're dealing with here. It's not the same thing. Although, incidentally, hanging over our heads right now is the future of climate refugees, which is coming. Uh, we're not even beginning to think about that, but it's coming. Um, in this case, uh, we are dealing with a fairly controlled and planned and timed and, in theory, manageable immigration if we could deal with proper resettlement and proper um, housing, which we have the capacity to do. And this is the heart of the matter. It's very easy to de demonize uh, migrants. Very easy. And it's, as you mentioned, already happening. The PPC has been doing it, the People's Party of Canada. That hasn't really resonated at the mass level, but it's picked up at a certain level. And you see sort of, you know, little tinges of it going mainstream. To his credit, Pierre Polyev has not gone that way. For the most part, he continues to maintain the immigration consensus, which has been a big part of our politics for a long time across the board, New Democrat. Um, liberal conservative, but there's a real risk that turns. So we have to watch them very carefully. But the, the one of the key points here is that we have the capacity, we have the resources to manage the migration that we see to this country. We can do it. We're choosing not to because we're protecting, um, you know, not in my backyard interests and, um, you know, non-dense housing in cities. We've got to get over that. We've got to build density and we've got to build, build, build. And we're, and, and I think it, it requires a significant amount of cooperation across two, even three orders of government, the federal, the provincial, the municipal government to get that done. And right now we're not seeing that. So it, until we do, we're going to see that pressure mount. But I'll, I will just point this out very quickly. Prior to this being blamed on immigration, you saw it blamed on foreign ownership. Remember that? that especially in British Columbia, was a big deal as well. Houses are too expensive because of foreign ownership. And that turned out to be not so much the case, right? So the next thing is, well, we're going to blame immigrants. When the fact is, we're, ultimately, it's a whole bunch of things that are contributing to the crisis. But the fundamental one is we're not building enough housing. David Monstrous, speaking of the foreign ownership, uh, Meta slash uh, Facebook and, and, and Google, uh, where do you think uh, the government is going on this? Because, I mean, at, at some point, it's going to look like... Uh, uh, Google and, and, and Facebook have uh, stuck a thumb in the government's eye and not really paid a serious price for it. Is is the government going to back off uh, the bill? Is the government going to uh, change the bill? What's your take? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know. I mean, I will say this. The, the battle between the platforms and the government is a proxy war between Meta and Google and the entire world. For one of the, this isn't often the case, but Canada is kind of at the bleeding edge of a global battle over the future of tech regulation. We really matter right now. Australia preceded us by a year and change. In 2021, the law came to effect. Uh, and, and now we're picking up on it. But Google and Meta are fighting us here because they don't want to have to fight in the EU. They don't want to have to fight in the United States and elsewhere. 
because I think a lot of jurisdictions are looking at what's happening in Canada and saying, okay, well, if they can do this and they can do this like that, maybe we can too. There's a bill before Congress right now. There's a bill in California that's slowly making its way towards law. It's been delayed, but it's happening. Uh, and so that's we're a proxy battle for that. So I think the government thinks it can stand its ground because in many ways it has large sections of the world behind it uh, who believe that these tech companies extract significant value and returns from jurisdictions who they play off against one another and they ought to be paying a little bit more for that privilege. And the government made, I think, a strategic error in tying this to news media sharing and the quote unquote link tax, because people look at this and say, well, if you tell them they have to pay for hosting news and they turn around and say, well, then to hell with you, I'm not going to host news. Where do you go? There's nowhere to go there, right? They're in, they're in compliance with the law. They're not hosting news. Whereas they should have said from day one, you're extracting value. Um, you're not paying your fair share of taxes. Incidentally, you're killing the media industry because you've eroded the, the advertisement model. We think we're going to tax you straight up. We're going to put a tax on ads, for instance, or we're going to make sure you're paying corporate tax here to ensure that you're paying your fair share. There's already a movement to do this with a digital services tax, which is the, which. Uh, there's a global consensus that it's necessary, and Canada's moving ahead on that ahead of other countries. So that that's emerging, but I I don't know if they're going to back down on this. I think they're kind of they're they're dug in, and and maybe they're going to try to see it through and wait for for Meta and Google to cave. Although Meta and Google don't want to cave because they don't want to set that precedent. So I, I don't know where it's going to go. But those are those are the stakes, and that's the that's the status. So Canada would have leverage if other countries didn't just talk about standing with us, but actually stood with us and actually did something, did something similar to what we're doing. But if they don't, where's the leverage? At the moment, there isn't any. Uh, you know, one of the critiques I raised a couple of years ago uh, and continued to raise throughout was why didn't we proceed multilaterally on this? The same way we're proceeding multilaterally on the the minimum corporate tax, uh, the same way we're more or less proceeding multi multilaterally on the digital services tax. That one's a bit complicated because we we you know proceeded multilaterally and then the U.S. wanted to slow down because the 2024 election was coming up and Canada said to hell with you, I'm going ahead anyway. So uh, that was semi-multilateral because we've we've backed off of it, but more or less you get the idea. Uh, on this, there wasn't a multilateral coordinated move. And I thought, well, if you had done that from day one, if you had got the United Kingdom and Australia and New Zealand and us, and perhaps even the United States, or at least a couple of states, maybe you get New York, maybe you get California, and you press on and say, we're all doing this, we're all doing it in the same way, we're all doing it at the same time, then you would have had a much better chance of using the leverage of several hundred million people rather than 38 million people uh, to try to get a, a good deal and from from Meta and Facebook and others and or from Meta Google and others and prevent them from saying well we're just going to turn off the taps here we're going to turn off the taps there because you'll remember that they did the same thing in Australia when that bill was was before uh, the legislature uh, they said well we're going to shut down news in Australia and they did and then Australia came in and they backed down and they made some amendments and the platform companies were were appeased and then that was the end of that uh, we can't do that in this case now it doesn't look like anyway because the government is dug in so that's where we're at now
Well, I agree with you 100%, uh, David uh, Mosscrop. If we don't do this uh, multilaterally, if we just don't, if we just do this alone, um, they're going to kick the crap out of us. And I don't like the, that visual, but that's certainly how it, it looks right now. It looks like Canada cannot stand up to, to Facebook and Google. And you've got all these media companies now who are naturally complaining that they've got less access to Facebook and Google. And regardless of how we might want to talk about how Facebook and Google have destroyed the media revenue model because so many uh, uh, Canadian media uh, customers are now advertising on Facebook and Google feeling uh, that they're getting a, a bigger bang for their buck. Regardless of all of that, uh, our media companies still want very much to have access to, uh, to Google and Facebook because much of what is created, without getting into the weeds here too much, much of what is created in Canadian media is uh, created to have some some click power, if you want to expand on that a little bit. But uh, the, the relationship between Canadian media, why is it that uh, many members of Canadian media, whether they're called newspapers, radio, TV stations, why is it that they need Facebook and Google? Never mind the revenue, just in terms of exposure. What's the connection there? Yeah, it's referral traffic. And this is one of the, this is what makes the, the Online News Act debate kind of absurd because outlets benefit from what we call referral traffic. Someone posts something on Facebook or on Instagram uh, from a media outlet in Canada and someone sees it and clicks on it. Otherwise, they might not have seen it. Otherwise, they might not have clicked on it. They might, they might not go directly to CBC or to CTV or to Global or uh, to, to Cryer Media for that matter, right? They, they're going to go through uh, someone posting it or they're going to go look it up on Google. So in that case, that's not the same as someone posting it. In, in the Google case, it's a search engine indexing it so that you can find it when you type in, you know, Doug Ford Greenbelt. Um, and, and that's the way a significant number of people get their news. They don't go directly to the sites like you, the old days of uh, pick up a newspaper, right? They're, they're going to go to uh, Twitter, Facebook, wherever and get it from there. And so that drives traffic. And so this is what made the debate so silly because people said, well, isn't it a service that these that Meta and Google are providing to you, Canadian news outlet, by linking to your stuff and someone clicks on it and they go to your page, they read your story, maybe they sign up for a subscription, maybe they see an ad on your page, isn't that good? Isn't Why should we pay you for a service we're providing? Which is a pretty compelling argument. The counterpoint is, well, you're doing more than that. You're undermining the entire model. You're not paying taxes. You're extracting a lot of ad revenue, and we think you should pay more. But ultimately, yeah, they're providing a service through through linking, and hence why the, the, the debate has been so silly, uh, ultimately. So this is really about Canadian behavior, and we can talk about the Canadian government. We can talk about uh, Canadian uh, media organizations, like you mentioned, CTV, Global, CBC, the newspapers and others. And we can talk about uh, mega American corporations uh, like uh, Meta and Google. But really, what we're talking about here is the behavior of human beings, whether they're in Europe or the United States or, of course, right here in Canada. And these human beings are now used to, many of them, not going directly to news sites, but directly going to their friends, their virtual friends on on Twitter, their virtual friends on Instagram or Facebook. And if their friends say, hey, uh, George, uh, Jan, uh, you might want to read this piece that David Moscrop published in the Toronto Star. And that's how they find you. 
they they weren't looking at the Toronto Star site. They weren't looking, with all due respect, for David Moskop. Mm-hmm. But their friend said David Moskop's got something to say here, and and this is something that informs me, as a media professional, that the media needs Meta, and Twitter much more than those American giants need uh, the Canadian media. It's not even close. It's not even close. I mean, it's not that Meta and Google don't derive any revenue from media clicking in Canada. They do. They, they derive quite a bit of it. But it's more important for media folks to have them than it is for them to have media folks because people will click on other things. I mean, Meta will take a hit. Google will take a hit. But they've made the calculation that it's worth sacrificing that money, at least in the short, maybe even midterm, uh, and then try to win the battle because if they lose the battle, then they're going to lose a lot more money in the long term. So they're going to have it out. And in the short to medium term, it's going to put a lot more pressure on on uh, Canadian media sites who are struggling to get every click they possibly can. Now, of course, these look, these sites also have an interest in the in the deal because they want to have um, side bargains that return lots of money from these platforms, right? So this is part of the thing was the you know, the platforms were striking side bargains uh, with with companies with um, post media with tour star, and they were basically just giving them big bags of cash, right? And these side deals were, were investing a lot of money into the newsrooms, in some cases approaching uh, a significant part of their editorial budget. I remember doing some work on this a while ago, and if you added up the government subsidies and the meta subsidies, there was something like over 50% of editorial budgets in some newsrooms were being funded by external bodies, by governments and by Facebook and meta. That's a lot. That's a lot of money that's coming from the government and from private corporations who are outside your industry to fund you. Uh, So this was a lifeline. There was something kind of absurd about it, though. It was, okay, we're going to take all these billionaires' money over here at Meta and Google, and we're going to give it to this other billionaire over here who happens to run Post Media. And a lot of us were saying, well, this looks kind of strange, right? We're, we're just sort of shifting around from like the, from this American conglomerate over to this American hedge fund who happens to run some Canadian newspapers. And we're like, well, that, that doesn't feel great. And in Australia, they were having a similar problem because the Murdoch empire was extracting tons of value through their deals with, with Meta and, and Google. So we're like, well, this is kind of doesn't look great. And a lot of smaller media outlets actually opposed the Online uh, uh, News Act previously Bill C-18 because of the same idea. Like, you know, it, was, it just seemed off to them. Especially the upstarts that rely on subscribers and are driving a lot of value through that, like The Logic, for instance, right? The Logic is a great example of, a, of an innovative startup in Canada that provides a lot of value and is subscriber-driven that don't need Facebook and Google in the same way. So they were a little bit weary of the, these, these organizations as a class, the smaller ones are a little bit weary of the of the deal. So it's ended up being a bit of a comedy of, of absurdity ultimately. But at the end of the day, the broader point is that media is up against the ropes and we got to find a way to, to save journalism because if it does disappear and it could, and if it doesn't reinvent to scale, which could be the case, the stuff that floods the information zone is going to be the trashiest misinfo, disinfo, um, extremist nonsense you could possibly find, and it's going to fill that void. As the old, as the old line was, well, the truth costs money, and the lies are free, so people are going to go to the lies. 
David Moskrop is a columnist with the Washington Post. He's the host of the Open to Debate and Left Looking in Podcasts. So he's a podcaster and columnist, and he's also an author, and I'm proud to say a friend of this podcaster. David Moskrop, thank you very much. Hope to have you back again shortly. My, my pleasure. And by the way, incidentally, that bio tells you the story of Canadian media these days. you got to be a hustler across several uh, different media. And uh, I'm glad I got to come on here today and do a little hustling. <laughs> you can hustle here on this platform anytime. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press. And every day at criermedia.co.